Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, and I am so thrilled to be joined today by Dr. O'Neill Britton. Dr. Britton currently serves as a Senior Vice President of Operations and Associate Chief Operating Officer for Mass Brigham. He previously served as a Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Massachusetts General Hospital which was a role that he was in since 2016 and actually where our paths crossed when I was completing the fellowship at Mass General. Dr. Britton was born in Kingston, Jamaica and immigrated to New York as a teenager. He attended City College of New York and the New Jersey Medical School. He also completed the DLAND Fellowship, an administrative fellowship in healthcare management at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, so Dr. Britton, it's so great to have you on here today. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So can we just start off the conversation by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your pathway? Like what led you to the role that you're in now as um, Senior Vice President of Operations and Associate Chief Operating Officer? Well, it's interesting sort of where I am and where it all started. Um, you know, my my story is very, is somewhat common. Uh, you know, I'm an uh, immigrant, uh, so it's common to the American story where uh, most of us uh, came here um, as, uh, as immigrants, um, uh, you know, ex- excluding all the stuff that happened before. So <laughs> most of us came as voluntary immigrants. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I came to the U.S. when I was a teenager and um, lived in Brooklyn with my family and subsequently was trying to figure out how to make, um, you know, just how to, to fit in into the American landscape, uh, how to uh, sort of uh, make progress. And uh, like so many families, uh, we were all out working and trying to go to school and, and trying to balance everything. But I had the, the good fortune of getting into a school, uh, City College of New York, that was fairly cheap, very cheap by uh, any standards. Um, back then, cheap enough for us to be working class people and attending colleges. And it sort of offered um, an opportunity for students. It was very, um, you know, engineering and science based. And so it offered an opportunity for those of us who had interest in science and engineering to pursue those, uh, you know, dreams. And uh, and so I, I went to City College and uh, initially thought I wanted to be a computer scientist. And... Um, uh, when I started at City, I, 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 I declared my major as a computer science student and then, uh, you know, subsequently realized I didn't like that. Um, I just, you know, I thought I would be competent at it, but it, I, I just met so many students where that was, they had a passion for it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think I steering in the terminal for 12 hours a day. It really excited some of my colleagues. And, you know, this was pre-Windows, this was pre-the internet. So, you know, we were really working off the building blocks of what we enjoy today as, uh, you know, casual browsing or whatever uh, people do um, in terms of communication and using the, the computer. 
software. But so I was I was there, and uh, and and that was probably the first big step. Just uh, you know, you know, moving back a little bit and just stepping back and go. Um, I don't have a pa- I don't have the same passion, and I just don't want a job. I wanted to be part of something that I would have a passion for. And so, but it was a very sort of um, disruptive uh, moment for me in my life because I thought I was going to do something. I realized I did I didn't want to do it, and then I had to change direction. And I really had very little safety net under me. You know, like the time was click that time was uh, uh, going on, and I was really worried that I could be making a mistake. But I I I switched over with a focus on secondary education because one thing I did love growing up was my high school experience. I just had great mentors and great teachers, and they sort of you know really infused in us this idea that we could make a significant impact. And again, I owe to uh, great mentors and great teachers, but I thought I'd do secondary education. And while I was in the secondary ed classes, I started taking some science classes, uh, early biology, early chemistry, and really realized that I was pretty good at that and that it, you know, it was an interest that I was curious about. And, um, and it's so funny because I tell people when I started the introduction to biology 101, the first month was about, you know, zoology and like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, about cell life and amoebas and stuff like that. And, and are, are really about classification and, and a lot of um, uh, sort of the, you know, the, the foundations of biology and, and between the Latin words, which I never took Latin growing up and between just how distant it was from what I do today. It was really hard for me, and I almost failed out that first test. I remember I got a 74, and I was like, oh, my gosh, there's nothing that, I, that seems to happen that works easy for me. Long and short of it, though, is that I made a deal with the professor that if I, if I could feel how the second test worked, I'd be willing to stick around in the class. And he said, go ahead. And we got into the human systems, and I was so fascinated. Seemed so interesting, just up my, you know, really uh, what I was interested in. And I subsequently uh, just used that as a platform and, you know, made lots of mistakes in college. I was, I was like a very, it was a very difficult transition and one that I look back now on and I am just uh, shocked that I was able to get through college, but I, but I did, I sort of, you know, between my natural interest in the biological sciences and uh, my, you know, resiliency back then, um, I finished college in seven years. It took me seven years to finish college. Um, uh, and then I got into New Jersey Medical School. And when I got to New Jersey Medical School, Rutgers today, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, it was just one of those moments where I remember walking in the first day and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I found my tribe and this is what I want to do. And I just was like, I'm just going to work super hard. And um, I did and, uh, and uh, you know, did really well in medical school and with that ability uh, was able to uh, apply to the very best residency programs in the country. And coming from a, you know, middle of the crowd uh, college and a middle of the pack medical school and applying to the best residency, it, it felt like a stretch at the time. Um, and some of them said no. Um, and some of them said yes when it came to the interview process. Um, and, um, you know, one of them that said no, uh, one of them that said yes was the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I knew a little bit about the Brigham coming up just from textbooks and things that I've read. But I was able to match yeah, the Brigham and Women's Hospital internal medicine. And that sort of laid the foundation for everything I did after that. 
So this is a very long-winded answer to a simple question you asked, but um, through various experiences at the Brigham, you know, I, I always knew I had a great interest in how the hospital worked and how we actually deliver care. It was one of the reasons why I went into medicine in the first place. Growing up in the tough part of Brooklyn back then, we really didn't have access to medical care. We had public health clinics. We had the emergency rooms. And whenever we went there, we always felt like third-class citizens, you know, between the insurance payments and our inability to pay and the doctors who seemed to overwork, the clinical staff who just seemed, you know, burnt out back then. And this, you know, unending demand for care from the patients, the poor patients in the neighborhood. I think it was just tough on those good people who were trying to deliver that care, but were in tough positions. And I just kept saying, you know, you, medicine is such a universal gift. I wanted to be a part of the delivery system. And so I always had this great interest in how the medical system worked and how we deliver care to patients. And so when I was in residency, I started exploring that, just, you know, just asking questions about how my clinic worked or how we organized ourselves or why we did things the way we did things. And just, and then I asked the, the clinic director if I could spend some time just following her around, you know, when I had electives and she said, sure. And so I'd watch how she managed the staff and how she organized the day and how she put the doctors where they're supposed to be and how she organized the nurses, so forth, so on. And that just grew. And so I, I, when I finished my residency and started my attending work, I got involved uh, just volunteering for committees and going through. And eventually, um, I ended up, um, you know, leaving the Brigham and going to New York and working for a little bit uh, at Blue Cross Blue Shield, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in New York, because I wanted to get some experience around, uh, you know, the healthcare, uh, you know, healthcare in general. Um, and that was one of the ways to do it. I became a medical director. And, uh, you know, would work with hospitals from all around the New York tri-state area. And then um, after that, came back to do my Deland Fellowship at the Brigham and worked with a wonderful mentor and uh, one of my heroes, Kate Walsh, who is now the president at Boston Medical Center. And uh, worked with Kate, uh, did a bunch of uh, projects um, with, during the fellowship. And after the fellowship, I was offered the opportunity to continue working at the Brigham. Um, in an administrative role and worked at the community hospital of the Brigham Faulkner with a lot of concentration of the efforts there and around network integration and sort of, you know, making sure that the two hospitals work more hand in hand. And uh, from the Faulkner was probably, you know, I didn't really want to go to the Faulkner at first, wanted to be at the mothership, wanted to be at the Brigham, thought that that was where the action was. But actually going to the Faulkner, not only was it a wonderful place with wonderful people, but they just allowed me to grow and allowed me to experiment in spaces that I don't think given the hierarchy and the structure of the Brigham, I would have been allowed to do that. And eventually uh, at the Faulkner, I oversaw the, in, the information systems uh, department. I was uh, named a VP over that uh, function. And from there, I was invited to Masternal Brigham at the time partners to pick the new EHR, to be on the committee that picked the new EHR. And uh, when I picked the new EHR, I went back to the Faulkner. And a couple of years later, after they launched the EHR implementation, they were looking for a leader of the EHR uh, project. And they asked me if I would do that or I would apply for that. I, I was able to get that position. And from that position, I eventually worked with all the hospitals in the Masternal Brigham system. And that was the first time I worked with the MGH. And uh, it was working with the MGH leaders, Sally Mason Bomer, uh, Peter Slavin, uh, you know, uh, David Torciana, others, 
that finally, you know, because at the time, you know, when you were at the Brigham, you didn't really interact with the MGH much. And, you know, and so I was able to interact with the MGH leadership and uh, just around the ending part of the Epic implementation, Peter Slavin asked me if I would work or if I would apply for the vacant CMO job at the MGH and senior VP. And I did, I was able to get that position. And from that position, I'm here today at Master Noel Brigham as the associate COO and senior VP of operations. But it was, that journey is kind of strange and bumpy and has lots of twists and turns, but that's long and short of it. No, that is so awesome. And I think that just goes to show like uh, whenever I first met you, I was just so impressed and kind of blown away by your story because it really is a journey. And I think, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning, um, you know, immigrating here to to America. And, and I think you mentioned something like, you know, you're integrating into the American life. Like, do you feel like you have fully integrated now? I mean, I know that as someone who kind of was raised, um, you know, my family immigrated uh, from Mexico to the U.S. And I think there's always kind of this sense of being in the middle between two different worlds. I, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Uh, exactly that way. You know, there is always a you know, I was just having a conversation today with another immigrant, uh, uh, a colleague of ours who's uh, uh, started, uh, her family started in Vietnam and coming here and living in Boston and, and her success story. Um, and I was just saying how, you know, America um, is still struggling with its, you know, its tendency to be tribal, you know, and we see it today in our political discourse, we see it in our social organization, you know, you know, neighborhoods are not really melting pots, they're sort of like, you know, uh, even in big cities that are supposedly melting pots, they're just segments. It's almost like pizza slices of a pie and just there are sharp demarcations between, you know, Italian neighborhoods and Irish neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and Latin neighborhoods. And so, you know, there is a something about, and you know, if you've been here multiple generation, I think when you're born here, it, it feels different probably because you're told a narrative that, you know, this is how America all came together. If you came here, and live somewhere else, uh, there is a tendency to feel this otherness um, that is normal um, because I think, um, you know, overall, I think, uh, um, you know, you never quite, um, you never quite feel as integrated or assimilated as probably a native born American. And you're reminded of that from time to time, either through your accent or the way you look or the way you dress or the, you're just your, your, you know, your, the, the way you carry yourself, there's sort of a little bit uh, you know, minor differences. And if you don't notice it, if they don't, if people don't notice it about you, you'll notice it about them, sort of those little differences. So, um, so you never, I have always felt a duality and I embrace it. You know, I, I embrace, I know who I am today mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, as, as much as I, I challenge America to always be better, who I am today is very much because of America and, and, um, and being here and the opportunities that it extends it. Uh, extends to me. And quite frankly, I've told people that if I had stayed in Jamaica, there's no way I would be who I am today. In, uh, I wouldn't say there's no way, but there's a little, you know, the, the probability would be less, um, probably much less that I'd be who I am uh, if I had stayed in Jamaica. But nevertheless, um, uh, but that duality of always feeling like, you know, you're in two worlds uh, uh, continues. So, uh, uh, you know, we'll see how that plays out one of the things you were tasked with is aligning clinical operations. And that seems like a, it's a very large task. And so I was hoping you could break it down and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about how you're thinking of aligning. What are the steps you're doing to, to make that happen? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, um, when I was in charge of the Epic implementation, right, uh, that was around alignment of the, what I would call the plumbing and the, electric, the electrical work, you know, uh, before I took that job on, before we had Epic, we had about 28 different information systems distributed across our network and they didn't talk to each other. And so there was definitely a strong desire to have a single system. And remember when we used to transfer a patient, for instance, from Newton Wellesley to the Brigham, you had to re-register the patient, the records didn't talk to each other. So you had to get faxes and you know, couriers would come with uh, you know, paper records or they'd fax over everything to us. And, um, you know, so, and the patients, even though we said we were one system would be surprised. We wouldn't know who they are. We wouldn't have the complete record. We'd make, you know, potentially there were opportunities to make errors because you didn't have the complete record in front of you. And so we wanted to correct all of that. And we said, you know, we're going to make sure that, you know, it's almost like you're building a house and you're saying, we're going to have the same plumbing and wiring, right? And so that was what Epic did for us. And so we went through and we said, this will help our patients because now when they come through the door, whatever key they have that opens the front door, opens the back door and it opens the side door, right? And so, you know, it just becomes something where you don't have a different entry mechanism or you had to do different actions to get in. So my work today, using that as a foundation, my work today now is actually how you know, looking through the house and then deciding, you know, how do we get organized in the house where the house actually feels like a house and doesn't feel like a boarding house where you have, you know, eight different rooms and eight different families living in the rooms. And, you know, in one part of the house, you know, they're cooking roti and in another part of the house, they're cooking, you know, you're vegetarian. And if you go from one room to the next, you're like, what is this? It's completely different, right? So now we are in the culture and the daily sort of trying to transform the house where when somebody visits the house, it feels like a single house rather than what can be detached rooms doing their own thing. And so the clinical integration that we are embarking on that journey is about, it's wrapped around the patients, really. It's making the patient walk in and feel like, hey, you know, I know that this is one house. And so if I enter the MGH door and it looks like the MGH, it smells like the MGH, it feels like the MGH. And somebody says to me, hey, you want to go to the back room? And because I have somebody back there that I want you to meet from the Brigham, when I enter the Brigham space, you know, it may have a, you know, the room may be, you know, have different paintings on the wall, it may be a different color, but it should be familiar, right? And it should feel like, you know, the MGH person in the front room spoke and easily handed off, uh, you know, my care to the person in the back room. And so there should be a familiarity about it, there should be an ease about it, that makes that, you know, um, that makes that work. So I would say that um, overall, that's what we're doing with clinical integration. But it, you know, this is very relatively to how people work every day and what you do and what you come in and do every day. This may feel, you know, this may feel, this may invoke, uh, you know, worries and anxiety about how is my job going to change? Am I going to force somebody to move? You know, today I'm working at the MGH. Will I be forced to go to the partner? 
No, that's not what we're doing. You know, we're, we're not interested in changing parking spots. Uh, we're not interested in changing how you, you know, how the, where the coffee machine is. That's not what we're doing. What we want to do is to really just wrap around the experience. And what we want to create is that I, the way I tell people to imagine it is what I'm hoping to create is that patients enter a door, you know, they enter a facility, they enter a clinic, they enter a treatment area, a care center, wherever they enter, I want wherever that entry point is, wherever that door is, I want that door to represent a portal of possibilities. You know, maybe all that you need is in that first door and that first room. You know, maybe you came in for a sprain, you need an x-ray, you need somebody to tell you that nothing is broken, you get an ace wrap and a boot and that's all you need. But let's say you have a compound fracture and you're in an uh, urgent care center and we don't do that there. I want somebody to be able to take you, you know, just get you settled, you know, treat you a little bit to take away the pain and then make arrangements for you to go to someplace else. And that handoff is seamless. And when you get there, they know why you're there and who sent you and they realize what's going on with you and they get to treating you right away. And then maybe somebody will say, hey, you know, while you're here and your, your, your foot got fractured a certain way, we noticed you had some things that we think may have contributed to that. Maybe you have some kind of bone condition or maybe you have something else that, you know, would really require a specialist to follow up with you. And we have that person too. And so that journey for the patient as they go from space to space represents portals to, you know, all imaginable treatments and innovations that we offer here. And that's what I want us to do. So that's what clinical integration means. It means the ability to enter a space and the care being wrapped around the patient. And number two for me, it also means having access uh, to patient care because the other thing that we will really need to work on and improve is you know, we have lots of great clinicians, but the time taken to see them is very long. And how do we organize ourselves to make that wait time much more reasonable? And how do we segregate that so people can, you know, you, you have urgent access, you have, uh, you know, non-emergent access, and you have deferred access. You know, whatever your needs are, we can meet those needs. And how do we sort of organize ourselves that allow those options for patients in a way that makes them feel like we're very different from everywhere else that they go? Mm -hmm. I really love that analogy of the house and making sure it's like one smooth journey or pathway. Um, and of course, like keeping patient, um, the patient experience uh, and making sure patients get the care that they need. I know it's a goal that we're all trying to work, work to. Um, I can imagine that maybe we say the occupants of the house, as you said, are, are very used to having their room, you know, the way that they, they like it and the way yeah. they've known it's been for however many years. And so um, when you go through this, you know, process for, uh, for change and making sure you're aligning things, um, how do you help, you know, soften or alleviate the anxieties that people feel um, when those changes are occurring? Well, you know, the first thing I would say, Yolanda, is that most people would probably recognize that change needs to happen, right? So it's it's not a it's not necessarily that people get nervous that I'm coming with a wrecking ball. I think if you work in healthcare, you know, there are days where you're just disappointed you couldn't do more for the patient, right? And you know, it's that sentiment that I'm trying to get to, where we know we're pretty good, 
But we were like, gosh, we could even be better. If only we could just figure these things out, it could be so much better. And so that's the emotion and the sentiment that I try to like, you know, get to and hang my hat on. Um, and, and so I think all our uh, employees know that we do a pretty good job. And many of us, we have so many heroes in our system that they extend themselves and really embrace the patients and minimize the disruption to the patients. But I even want those employees to not need to extend themselves so much, you know, like, oh my gosh, because, you know, you can do that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of times, but if that, if you spend your, your career doing that, that can lead to burnout, right? Because you work long hours, you're trying to do your best, you're extending yourself all the time. And sometimes that works for burst or short term, but if you're, if you're having to do that and, and, and if you are personally trying to close the gaps in our system every day, that can lead to frustration and, and in a bad in a worst case scenario burnout. So I I sort of appeal to the piece where I know all our employees because this is how I work when I'm seeing patients. I was like, gosh, you know, I, I just know that if I, you know, we could do a little bit better here. And so I sort of uh, approach people and say, I know we think we can do better. Like, you know, like uh, you need to order an MRI. Okay. So, okay. Uh, where do you want to order the MRI? Uh, MGH Chelsea, that's going to take three weeks, right? Um, I could say to you, well, oh, your knee is hurting you. And so, you know, MGH Chelsea is going to take three weeks. And maybe you'll take that. Or, you know, some of the patients would, but, you know, on some, in some ways I could say, you know, if I could just fix how the MRI uh, process works and the technology that brings you the MRI, and allow the schedulers at MG Chelsea to look at you and say, hey, you know, it's three weeks at MGH Chelsea, but it's actually, you know, four days at MGH Waltham. And it's actually two hours at Brigham Boylston Street. Um, would you be willing to go to Brigham Boylston Street? And I think a lot of patients would say, absolutely, I would be willing to go to Brigham Boylston Street. So it's just breaking down those barriers and going, you know, all the assets are for us to manage and for us to utilize to their maximal, uh, um, you know, your maximal capacity. And it's in the service of the patient. Now, for some patients, they'll say, you know, you know, I'm really nervous about MRI. I need to, you know, I need to take a break. It's been overwhelming. I don't mind waiting a week. I need to regroup. That's fine. But if you're somebody who's like, you know, I would really love to hear an answer. I'd want the answer as early as possible. I want to be able to accommodate you, right? And to the best of my ability. So, so that's how I sort of look at it. And I sort of play upon that thread and feeling that we all have saying, you know, I wish I could do a little bit more for you. And, and, and then I get people together and try to get them to help me design what the future looks like. And then I say, listen, if we design it well, you know, our patients will be thankful. Your work hopefully will be easier and you will feel this, you know, this cycle of, you know, reinforcement where you do something positive, you get positive feedback and you want to do more positive. So that's sort of how it feeds on itself. Um, but when I just, when I first show up and go, hey, we need to change things. I totally can understand people going, oh my gosh, I've been doing it the same way for 50 years. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I think you brought up a, a number like uh, things that I wanted to kind of dive a little bit more into, which is, um, you know, 
getting to like the emotion and sentiment. Like I think, um, you know, data is one piece and I think data is very important. And I think we use it so much, especially in, in healthcare and the system that we work in. But sometimes I do think we kind of overlook that emotion and the sentiments and the story, right? And just kind of saying like, yeah, this is this is just how we're feeling or this is how, uh, how we're seeing things play out. Um, so I think that's a really just important takeaway for us to keep in mind. And I, I imagine that anytime that you're, you know, um, changing something or, or making things better. It's a process and it takes time. So I'm sure you've developed like a sense of patience on the number of initiatives you've worked with, but do you have a timeline or a time frame for how long in your experience you've seen kind of um, people adapt to that change? I imagine that it depends maybe on the initiatives um, that you're working on, but just curious, like when it came to the um, EPIC implementation, what was like the time frame that you saw where people like slowly begin adapting to that over time? Yeah, so change management is interesting and it's like all human relationships somewhat, right? It's complicated. It's sort of, you know, some of it is timing, some of it is luck, some of it is personality driven, you know, um, and then some of and and then some of it is managing emotions, like you said, you know, and your 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 ability to take on new things, right? So, um, you know, I I tell people all the time, like you know, it's very hard because you know I I I have described this in many ways in the past, and you know, and use many metaphors and so forth, but. Uh, but what, what I say, you know, there's a couple of steps that I try to pay attention to. So, so the, the first thing is, you know, what is this change we're trying to do? Is, you know, and, and I try to think of change. It's very hard to, if you're going to change and have like, you know, incremental gains, you know, you, you have to balance the gains versus the pain of change, right? Um, I, I think even when people are well-intentioned, you know, sometimes um, even the gain of the change is not worth the pain. And, 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 and some of it is even more complicated than that. Like, you know, one of the things I tell people um, all the time is that, you know, every January 1st, people probably get up and go, all right, my resolution is I'm going to lose weight and be fit, right? And then, you know, that lasts for about two weeks, you know, or three weeks. And then the gain of being fit gets overwhelmed by just life, business, and then you're slowing down. And then, you know, by July, you don't have your summer body and you're like, all right, I guess that's another year that went by. But, and it's not, and it's complicated because it's not just you're trying to do things, but your, your internal workings in your body that makes this not as straightforward as you see on the, you know, the, the, the infomercial on TV, like, hey, if you do this, you're going to look like this uh, later on. It's just more complicated. So, you know, so sometimes I, I look at the change process and I was like, what are we trying to change and why? And, and does this change seem um, rational? Does it seem like, you know, uh, will it have a big impact and will it be worth the pain of going through the change process, right? So there's that piece of it. Um, there's the other dynamics of change where I tell people all the time, you know, very hard to change two types of people in my view, uh, very successful people uh, because whatever they're doing is working in the paradigm that it's working in, right? And people who are very unsuccessful, the two extremes, because there's nothing else to lose. So, you know, when you come to them and go, hey, you know, I could make your life better. And 
you're suggesting something that may represent an opportunity to them, they're like, oh, that looks like it, it's risky. And I figured out how to stay here. So um, sort of we're one of the things that we're blessed with at MGB is that we have a, a massive amount of successful people, highly accomplished, very successful in life. And so very successful in your work. And so when you come to them and say, hey, and I think we should change and we could make things better, it's reasonable for them to be skeptical and go, it's been working for me. You know, I figured out how to do this and do that. And I'm a full professor. I'm a, you know, I'm a world famous and so forth. Like, who are you? And so uh, that's reasonable. So the case for change may not be as compelling to them. Um, and again, this is where we sort of find that dynamic about, you know, making the case for change around patients and, you know, research academics, whatever we're doing and going, it will be better, you know, and it will be wrapped around. And I think even though you're successful, I think you even have the opportunity to be more successful if we land this change the right way. So the dynamics of who the people are and how they're doing it, you know, what's happening is, is very important. The other thing is about the timing of change. You know, sometimes people are just ready for change. Like I just mentioned one, New Year's Day, people get wrapped up and go, all right, I need to wake up and change. But, you know, in our, in our uh, corporate you know, sort of in our corporate lives or in our healthcare lives or however you want to describe our work lives, timing is also important. And like nowadays, you know, I tell people all the time, we're trying to do these changes and we're very careful um, in going through the change process, especially in this time frame. We're still in a pandemic. People have, you know, it's been a harsh pandemic, you know, lots of dynamics going on. People are very stressed. And sometimes when you're talking about the change, you're worried about, you know, it's almost like you have a glass full of water and you keep pouring more water in it and go, oh, and so you have overflow and the change is ineffective. Sometimes the glass is half empty and you could go, okay, I just, I could top it off and this will be meaningful. And sometimes the glass is totally empty. So some of it is the timing and when do you introduce change and the readiness for change, right? And so we have been very cognizant of saying, hey, the timing right now is precarious, we have to choose the things that we think will really matter and then really support the people who are, you know, we're asking to enable the change. So, so timing is important. Then the other part of change processes, uh, the change process too, is then, you know, again, naming the thing that you want, naming the goal um, and allowing people to criticize the goal, you know, because you need people to come in. You know, I always say that there's, when I have done big changes, you know, there seems to be three, three sets of people. There seems to be a group of people who are early adopters who are just like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe you took so long to show up. We've been waiting for this. There is the majority of people are what I call the neutral observers. You know, it, especially if the change is very political, they're not gonna oppose you publicly, but they're not gonna support you either. And they're just gonna watch how it plays out. And then you have the people over here who are the laggards, right? The people who are just like, this is going to be problematic. We shouldn't change. We're just, you know, and, and they'll, they'll try to attach whatever negative spin to it that they think would make us change our minds. And it's like, you're spending too much money. This may be unsafe, so forth, so on, right? But, and, but you got to hear all of them because the, the, the one thing that I'd say, even the people who are laggards, it's very important to hear them because sometimes they will inform the change process and make it better. And sometimes they have legitimate points or legitimate worries. So you, you got to get into the room. You got to state the idea. You got to get the people who are happy for you. You got to you know, engage the neutrals and get them ready because they're an important constituents. And you got to hear from your critics and listen with an open mind because when they're giving you feedback, you, gotta, you have to have an ability to take away 
you know, the, the, the real important points from the noise and go, that's a good point. We need to look into that. And that will inform our design and our process. And then finally, I said, the, the, you know, the final two things that I'd say about change is, um, or final three things, is you got to invite people to be part of the design process because, you know, the change needs to be sustained and it becomes most sustainable when people design their own solution rather than it being imposed on them. You got to make sure you test it, uh, you know, with a kind of, um, you have to test it with a, uh, you know, just being very, um, I don't want to use the word rigid, but just have a very, have, have an amazing testing process that allows you to uh, make sure that uh, whatever you're trying to do will work and will support the people doing the work. So you're, you're testing, um, your, your ability to test things and make sure it's ready for day one should be, you know, has to be of the highest quality. And, and then lastly, you have to train people and get them prepared. Um, and so uh, once you do that, uh, you have to put in the, the support because, you know, the early days of uh, people being unprepared is very disruptive to the change process. And people will, you know, especially those, uh, that big middle band, that's sort of the neutral observer, they will lose faith pretty quickly, right? So you have to invest and probably invest in a way, not skimp, but make sure that whatever you're introducing will allow people to do the jobs they think they're supposed to be doing and be successful at doing it. And so that's sort of my paradigm for change. Um, you know, and then when do people adopt? You know, again, you know, sometimes the change can represent sort of a grieving process for people, you know, where people get angry and then frustrated and then they, they bargain and then they come back to like acceptance and then they start emerging. And then for the early adopters, they're ready to go. And you have to actually deputize those folks. You gotta, I, I used to say that you have to deputize them and, and send them out uh, to, to sort of, uh, you know, communicate the, the message about why this is going to be great and how this is going to be helpful and, uh, and use them as agents uh, to get feedback and gather information and again, iterate and iterate and iterate. And the best change processes allow that iteration because that's the only way you improve. Mm. I have several things that I wanted to, to ask you a couple more questions about. Um, one of the things that you said was, you know, anytime you're um, implementing things or, um, you know, proposing change, allowing people to uh, criticize the goal. Someone once told me that the higher you go up the career ladder, the harder it is to get honest feedback from those around you, um, partly just because people are like, oh, like, this is what, you know, Dr. Britton's telling us to do, and I just need to go execute, you know, or yeah, just, yeah. So how do you make sure that you are getting honest feedback, either from those around you or from, you know, the, the, um, the organization that you lead? Yeah, it's a great question. Because again, you know, I, I still experience myself as the 15 year old kid from, you know, Kingston, uh, but, and I walk into rooms and when I'm talking to people, they may see me as some higher up that could, you know, take away their job uh, or whatever. Um, so it is a great question, um, sort of how you experience yourself and how others perceive you. Uh, you know, but we're lucky. We're in a system that encourages dissent uh, in some ways, you know, and, and there are times when people, you know, as, as, you know, Barack Obama used to say, you know, you can disagree without being disagreeable, right? And so 
I think that, you know, the first thing that I do is that I, you know, I go out and um, I try to engage people. And, you know, even though I have moved further uh, up the food chain from the, so to speak, from the front lines, it's still my job to go out and engage people, right, or, or, or stay connected to people. Um, and, you know, I, I tell people like, you know, there, there are probably people amongst us who, you know, wish we were more like the military where you just go, you know, I give an order and, you know, it goes down the, in the, the command chain, right? And uh, the guy who picks up the, you know, the weapon and the bayonet doesn't even know why he's attacking this person, but he knows that's the mission, right? He doesn't, he doesn't know them. It's a foreign land, but I, I'm just going to do it because I've been told that, you know, they're enemy number one. That's not how we work, uh, as, as you know. Um, but, and they're, and you know, they're, they're sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, desires that we could be more hierarchical. And in some spaces we are. But I was just describing this today to some of my colleagues. And I was like, we're a mixture between, you know, you know we, we can feel like a mixture between maybe a, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, Socratic law school and, you know, Twitter, you know, we're like, anybody can say anything. Right. And so I've been in meetings and I tell people all the time, it's kind of, it's, it, it's a blessing in, in disguise where people can just say what you're thinking. And, uh, because, you know, hearing it verbalized is very important and, and allowing it to, you know, to be in the space and really address it head on. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, point out when you say, you know, I really don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. I need to figure that out. Or, you know, you may be right. I don't know. Uh, or, you know, but so, so being very balanced as the conversations are happening and as the questions are coming is very important. Mm -hmm. And I have never been a leader who believes that I have to be so buttoned down and so orchestrated that I need to know, you know, it's like being in court, never ask a question that you, you don't know the answer to. I don't believe in that. I think we're in a much more free form environment. And we, because of the work we do, Yolanda, we need everyone to speak up or it becomes unsafe for patients. So I have to practice that uh, day to day. And I want it to be like Twitter without the rudeness or the, you know, uh, without the, the madness. But I wanted the, the opinions to be like Twitter, you know, like, you know, I don't know if this is right, or I think maybe making an expensive mistakes. And so I, I don't, I, I encourage that. And so, um, um, you know, so I would say that, uh, yes, people could say, you know, uh, I, uh, I, you know, I intimidate them, but I really work to connect with people in a way, hopefully, that they are able to tell me if they think whatever I'm doing may harm patients or harm the institution, not a good idea, and that we can try to settle those differences in opinions with mm -hmm. conversations. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I could talk to you for a more hours and hours. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that that's, um, there are so many takeaways that we can, um, that we can like, just like think and reflect on and apply in our like day to day. Um, I know that I, you know, I want to be mindful of your time, but uh, wow. I just am just so thankful for everything that you've shared. Um, I do have a couple more questions and these are what I call my rapid fire closing questions. Sure, so sure, sure. In addition to, to that part. Um, so I, one of the, one of the questions is um, what is your Myers-Briggs personality type? I don't even remember. 
<laughs> you know? Okay, let's see. We'll go and, and I, Are you extroverted or introverted? So I'm extroverted at work and introverted in my personal life. Okay. Okay. It's fascinating. I, I don't make friends. You know, I have a brother who is, who's an extrovert all around. Mm -hmm. And when I'm out with him, he's always like introducing me to people and, you know, you call people over and go, come meet my brother. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to be here. Just, I just want to listen to my music yeah. and my headphones on. But at work, I'm very, you know, I'm just, I naturally pipe up at work. I don't know. It's always been that way at school too, but in my social external life, I am much more introverted. Okay. All right. And I, you know, the reason why I say I don't get, you know, I, I don't get uh, too uh, wrapped up in Myers-Briggs is, you know, I remember, um, you know, my job is such, it's almost like being a kindergarten or first grade teacher. Right. And I had, my kids had one of the most wonderful first grade teachers. And I remember her saying something, um, uh, you know, because I, I walked in with my son and you know, my son, you know, first grade, my son, you know, recognized letters, but couldn't read. And mm -hmm. another first grader walked in and he read the whole board, you know, and I was like, oh my God, that kid is like, he read, he was like, welcome to one R, parents and students. And he just read everything she had written down. And I remember she must've seen the look on my face because I was like, man, this kid is like a genius. And she was like, listen, listen, first we meet the learners where they are. She's like, by the time they get to college, I am, I trust me, everybody will be able to do what you think they need to, need to do to succeed. And mm -hmm. so like everybody's in a different spot. And so that's how I look at everybody I work with. I got to meet the person where they are. That's my job. And so, it, you know, I, I totally recognize Myers-Briggs because sometimes I'm looking at somebody and go, that's a planner. Right. And I realize what's driving their anxiety because we don't have a plan. Or mm -hmm. I was like, that's an introvert or an extrovert, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, but beyond that, I just try to meet people where they're and go, how can I help you do your work? You know, how can I support you in getting what you want done, done? And so that's a, a little different. There you go. I think that's a, it's a unique perspective. I haven't had someone say that before. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> um, I think you kind of alluded to this, um, which is, you know, what can we find you doing on most days outside of work? And hopefully it's not continuing to work but <laughs> no 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 outside of work I you know, it's a lot of kid time and uh, family time um I coach my son's baseball team so I, I you know now it's the summer we're in the we're in the middle of that and I I spend a lot you know I try to spend as much time as I can um uh, watching my daughter play soccer uh you know and there's my kids are always in multiple sports uh, you know they're always playing sports uh this uh, in addition to school so we just sort of take it through and then you know um and then it's just running the house with my with my wife. You know, she's uh, she's super busy and uh, super talented. Uh, but our kids require a lot. There's a lot of like you know negotiations and movement through life, and and, uh, and they can be tough on you, those kids. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So so most of my time is spent either uh, socializing with neighbors, friends, uh, being involved with the kids' sports scene, and uh, just trying to get through you know get through that. And what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, I, uh, you know, so <laughs> I, I <laughs> it's interesting because I, I listen to, you know, what people would be called very X-rated hip hop music. <laughs> you know, like, it's okay. <laughs> always, I grew up with hip hop. 
um, you know, uh, I grew up with dancehall reggae. I grew up with, um, you know, reggae in general. Uh, this morning I was coming in, I was listening to Bob Marley and I was thinking to myself, listening to Bob Marley is like going to church. You know, the, the messages are just so varied. They're so human centered, you know, like, oh, we, you know, we got to do better. You know, that's how I grew up. Um, and then if I, you know, if I want to listen to, you know, you know, uh, I was just joking with my son because he turned on a Cardi B song and she was like, I'm in London, you know, re relaxing. And I was like, you know, I was like, I said to my son, you know, all she's saying is that she's rich. You know, she's just like, I was like, all this song is saying is that she's rich and she made it. And you need to respect her. Right. And so, but I have always found hip hop to be a wonderful, uh, you know, verbal art. Uh, mm -hmm. verbal poetry, verbal, you know, um, just 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 creative and amazing uh, how that industry was built with people with nothing, you know, and so um, um, so I've always loved hip hop. So, so that's my music taste. OK, see, and that's the, like I would have like I was expecting you to say something like along the lines of like classical music or no, like... no, no, <laughs> no. I was asking an interviewer. I was interviewing for residents. They were like, what instrument do you play? And I was like, I know how to handle turntables. So that's it. <laughs> I, I don't do I don't do yeah, yeah, instruments. <laughs> that is too good. That's too good. Uh, well, kind of along those lines, is there a like um, a book that you would recommend to listeners or it can be a podcast, too. It's whichever one you tend to lean towards oh my gosh you know um my wife is the podcast queen but i don't like listening to podcasts because she wants to listen to the podcast in the car and it's my moment to just unwind you know so yeah. i always say to her like how can your brain still be working when you get out of work because you got to listen to these people talking about serious topics and i would listen to podcasts you know maybe on a road trip but when i get out of work i just want to listen to you know, music, Thanks, I yeah. listen to, to hip hop or I want to listen to something else. So I would say that, uh, but I like listening to books um, um, on tape um, and I've listened to quite a few of them. I, I, you know, recently I've really been exploring sort of, you know, the history of America and, you know, equity and inclusion mm -hmm. and uh, how our country has evolved. And um, I, so I listened to this book, um, you know, stamped from the beginning, which was sort of an amazing book to, it's a very dense book, but speaks to the history of America, you know, and sort of, you know, finally, uh, trying to address the truth about how America has evolved. Right. And so, so stamped from the beginning, then that led me on to other books, like, you know, the sum of our parts and, you know, uh, and, uh, the, and another book, uh, called cast. That's sort of, you know, the, the origins of our differences. Um, and, you know, I have, um, I have the 1619 project that I need to listen to. Mm -hmm. I, I bought it as a book, but I've been struggling to read it because I'm exhausted by the time I go uh, to bed. Um, so I, I have the 1619 project and I just saw a book that I'm curious about um, uh, that I will probably get. And it's called The Man Who Killed Capitalism. And it's a re review of Jack Welsh and uh, how he dominated the American business corporate scene and changed American corporate culture for one where, you know, it, the, 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 uh, the, um, the resources generated by, you know, companies 
were more shared at workers and leaders. And now it's very skewed towards leaders, stockholders, and less for workers. And so how did we get here? And it's these are the uh, you know, evolution points, because I, as I think about how we manage our own workforce and how we uh, support them, you know, just how did we get here? Because what we inherit a lot has, has a story behind it. And just, just want to go back and examine those choices and go, was that the right choice? Can we compete differently? What do we want to be, you know, and just try to think through uh, how we're going to manage going forward? Because I think a lot of the things that we're seeing in our social in our society today are, uh, you know, a symptom of just churn that, you know, is pent up in people. And we have not been able to sort of, uh, you know, figure out the truth, find the truth and then choose a truth that works for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and hopefully you'll have some time coming up soon to kind of tick through that reading list. I was like, <laughs> I've been, we've been trying to find a good TV show, and um, uh, we're on to we're you know we love Ted Lasso. If you haven't watched that show, it's an amazingly funny show. And we watched uh, we we just started watching this um, Apple TV show Tehran, mm-hmm. um, uh, which has been interesting so far because it's a. Uh, it's not trying to do too much too quickly. So I sort of like uh, shows that have that pace. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I have a I have a lot more recommendations than I did going into this, which <laughs> I appreciate. <laughs> and the last question that I have for you is, you know, you, um, as you shared in your story, you have a number of different experiences and I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Is if you had to just share like the one, one key lesson with the audience, um, what would that be? And it can be in work-related, life-related, however way you want to take it. Yeah, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes, Yolanda. I tell you, uh, you could write a book about the mistakes I've made. And there's lots of lessons, you know. I guess, um, uh, what the, uh, you know, I would probably say, you know, I, I'm very into people. And, I'm, and, and I don't know if there's any one lesson. I have some guideposts, you know, some things. Mm-hmm. And I could probably summarize them in quotes that I've heard from people that I think are just amazing. Um, and, you know, uh, just try to say how I try to live. So, so the first thing is to just probably uh, try to figure out your North star and what matters to you. And then, you know, and, and just always look up whenever, you know, um, whenever you're uh, wondering where you are or which, you know, w- which direction you're headed and try to find your North Star. And, you know, you don't always have to be moving. Sometimes it will be cloudy and you can't see it. So you got to sit and wait for the clouds to clear, you know? So not every situation requires you to still be moving. Um, And just be patient with yourself. Be forgiven, be patient, wait for the skies to clear up and, you know, the rains to pass and the, the, the dark clouds to go away. And then you look up and find your North Star and keep moving. Um, so it's very important to do that. So Nelson Mandela said, you know, I never lose. I, you know, he says, I, I never lose. I just learn, you know, I, something like, you know, I never lose. I just learn. Mm-hmm. I win and I learn. So he doesn't lose. Um, and that just speaks to resiliency. I really do believe in, I grew up in a house that was anchored in social justice and just caring for people between my, my mom in a very human way, like, you know, trying to embrace our neighbors and our relatives. And my dad in a very politically conscious way, like system way, like, you know, there is something in this world that's unfair and you're going to have to try and help figure it out. 
Um, and so, you know, I always think about the real uh, two things that Martin Luther King said, which was, you know, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and that people have to pay attention to that. And the other thing that he said, which is, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate um, goal of racism is genocide. And that, you know, you cannot forget that there's no such thing as mild racism or soft racism. The ultimate goal of racism is genocide. And we have seen that repeated in history again and again. Um, and then I'd probably close with Maya Angelou, who said something of the sort, like, nobody will ever remember what you wrote. And nobody will ever remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people that, you know, really, you know, connect with people, get proximal to them, get, get close to them, proximity, um, and, and really change the narrative that there is us and them. I think especially high achievers, sometimes we get caught up with this idea that it was my own industry and my brilliance and my work, my hard work and my grit. And lots of things have to happen for you to be successful in the world. Some of it is just plain luck. Yes, some of it is your own industry and your own fight, but some of it is just plain luck. Some of it is just plain timing. Uh, but nevertheless, always remember to have compassion to the people who don't seem like it worked for them. People don't necessarily choose to be substance users or choose to be, you know, have criminal records. People have complicated lives. And we have to get proximal to people and be compassionate towards them. So I'll leave you with that and that Maya Angelou quote that just like, you know, we got to make people feel like we, uh, we acknowledge them, we notice them, and we want them to be better. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a better way to like close this episode. And I just want to, again, just thank you for like um, just everything that you're doing for our system. I'm very fortunate to work in a system that has you um, at the lead. And I'm very uh, grateful that you chose to spend an hour, you know, um, in this conversation and giving back to future healthcare administrators and other leaders who are excited about um, changing, uh, you know, what healthcare will look like. And um, I really hope that uh, the, the vision that you said at the beginning about aligning clinical um, uh, pathways and operations and really doing what's best for the patient is something we can all work for. So thank you very much for your time and for the work. Oh, and thank you for the opportunity. And I really am proud of all the work you're doing. and. Uh really excited that uh, you're trying to spread the word. So thank you for all that, uh, for all you do. 